Ben, what's your favourite fire cooking technique? Nothing fancy. Just goat satay cooked over coconut husk flames in Lombok with a dude fanning the coals <laughs> with a cardboard fan. Okay, okay. We'll put in the request to the people at Vivid Fire Kitchen, which is exactly what it sounds like. Vivid Fire Kitchen is a pop-up running as part of Vivid from May 24 to June 15 at The Goods Line in the Sydney CBD, and it's all about cooking with fire. Tandoor, teppanyaki, First Nations food, tender brisket, charred veggies and aromatic satay, to name a few. With hand-fanned coconut husks? Uh, I mean, no promises. Vivid Fire Kitchen proudly sponsoring this episode of Ingridopedia. All right, so fish and chips, chips, regular salt or chicken salt? Chicken salt. Yeah, I agree. I, I didn't grow up with that at fish and chip shops as a kid, and but I now agree it's superior. But, yeah, we didn't grow up with smartphones or, no. you know, flying <laughs> cars, but they're around now, so we're going to goddamn use our smartphones and our chicken salt. Goddamn right. Hi, you're listening to Ingredipedia, Australia's greasiest food podcast. My name is Ben Burchill. I'm joined by Emily Naismith. Hello, Em. Hi, Ben. This is the first episode of our Deep Fried Deep Dive, our special series on deep fried food. Where do you find the most overworked deep fryers in the world? <laughs> the fish and chip shop. Okay, well, let's talk fish and chips. What's the most unusual thing you've ordered from a fish and chip shop? Uh, I think it's like just the, uh, like unusual types of seafood, like a deep fried mussel. Yeah. Okay. I've before, never had like that. Like deep fried no? pickled mussels. Mm, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. It was actually pretty good. Uh, I can't even remember where it was, but yeah, I like to get just like a niche seafood. Yeah. Is, is a fun, is a fun, fun way of exploring, you know, like that question, like what, what's it like in batter? You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> Um, would it deep fry? Yeah. Um, I reckon I've haven't done a Mars bar, but I brought my own chocolate bar to this place. I know that you can bring your own and deep fry it. And I chose Turkish delight, which was an incredibly bad, um, choice because it just turned like molten lava, lava and yeah. I had like second degree burns mm. in my mouth for a while. Mm-hmm. It's very messy as well. Um, and I was only 16 and eating it in front of like my boyfriend's family. And I was just like, not a good time. But I have been researching weird fish and chip shop orders. And let me tell you, I have the goods. Mm. You, can, you can make your next fish and chip um, extravaganza a little bit kooky. So this one's from Reddit. Someone speaks of the double potato cake, which ah. is, they say, essentially two potato cakes, but fried as one. Mm-hmm. It's made to order. Um, although Brunswick Fish and Chippery on Moreland Road has the Brunswick potato cake, which is the potato cake equivalent of a double whopper. I also put the call out on Instagram and lots of people were replying with uh, fish souvlaki. So that's like the fried fish, tzatziki, tomato and lettuce in pita. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I've had one of them before. That is good. Yeah. Okay. Have you had a chip sandwich? No. Well, it's not like a DIY thing. Apparently they can do it for you. Um, and it's made with soft white bread, then filled with chips, chicken salt and tomato sauce. Brilliant. So good. Yeah. All yeah. the carbs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then someone else mentioned deep fried Tim Tams okay. as like a really good deep fried chocolatey yeah, thing. Yeah, that'd work because you want something with a bit of structure, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but they have to be eaten straight away or the biscuit goes a bit yuck. Yeah. But 
but, but, but. The best one I came across was the deep fried kiwi fruit. Okay. So this is from, someone told me about it and they got it from a fish and chip shop in Queenstown in New Zealand mm. called Eric's Fish and Chips. Apt. It's a kiwi, eating a kiwi exactly. fruit. Yep. So someone called Grace sent this to me and she said that the skin of the kiwi was removed and it had a super thin batter and then it was coated in sugar. And her words were, like a warm kiwi wears a cinnamon donut for a jacket. It's the most evocative <laughs> thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, and then I looked it up on Instagram and Eric's describe it as a mini apple pie on a stick, mm. but more tangy. Oh, so, so it's on a stick? Yeah, it's on a stick. Yeah, okay. And so I felt like the only thing left to do was to make one. So a few hours ago, Whoa. I deep fried a kiwi fruit for us. <laughs> but... Oh, I know that it won't be crispy anymore because it's like a few hours, but I brought my air fryer so we can have the best chance of crisping it up. Okay. So let me just plug it in and we'll okay. get it going. Okay. I can. Yeah. There is an air fryer in the studio. We've, uh, we've definitely gone to a new level here. Wow. Okay. okay. Here you go. It might be really hot. Um, but basically it looks like, it kind of looks like a dim sim, to be honest. It does. It looks, well, yeah, it looks or like one of those little donuts. Yeah. It smells good. This whole studio is filled with cinnamon goodness. Okay. Is this going to burn me really badly? Yeah. That is really good. Mm. Heaps of tang. Yeah. Because it's got the sweetness of the cinnamon sugar, obviously. And then, you know, just that great kiwi tartness. Five stars. Okay, great. Thank you. I feel like, well, like I want to go to New Zealand to support Eric's, but it's good to know that we can make our own version here just to try. They actually have a money back guarantee. Like if you don't like it, you can get your money back there. That's how much they're. Wow. Well, according to our um, analytics, we've got dozens of listeners from New Zealand. So <laughs> go and support Eric's. Um, but if you can't do that, then try it at home. It's delicious. Mm. Emily. Yes. Look, we all know that people call potato cakes different things. Yeah. And you covered We're it not going to do this. Episode 23, our potato episode. Yeah. It's not new. It's a potato cake in Victoria and Tasmania. It's a potato scallop in New South Wales, Queensland and WA. It's a potato fritter in South Australia. Some places just call them scallops. Yeah. Strange. So that's not new. But I guess the question is why do we get these different names? You didn't answer it in episode 23. I oh, have to of course say. not. <laughs> Nobody seems to answer it, but somebody has come close to, well, shedding a little more light on it than I've seen in the past. And that is our old friend, Australian Food Timeline. Oh, of course. She knows everything. She knows everything. And her contention is that potato cakes, scallops, fritters may have different names because they started out as very different dishes. So this is from Australian food timeline. The terms potato cake and potato scallop referred to very different dishes in days gone by. Potato cakes may have actually started out as actual cakes. Mm -hmm. Some early references to potato cake refer to afternoon tea style cakes that just happened to have potato as an ingredient. Is this like the Boston bun like thing? Boston bun. How we found out that there's mashed potato in Boston right. bun. There's even a chocolate potato cake. And I know you were very confused mm. by the term sweet potato cakes the other day oh when God. you went to... <laughs> Let's not mention. When you went to the Half Moon Bay <laughs> Fish like, and Chips. What is this sweet potato cake? Is it like drizzled in maple syrup? Is it dusted just, in sugar? It's just made of sweet potato. Yeah. Um... <laughs> 
But back to the website. Most refer to patties made from mashed or grated potato, bound together with flour or egg and fried, sometimes uh, something like the modern hash brown. One particularly elaborate creation was a kind of potato custard made in a breadcrumb-lined mould. So that's the start of potato cake. Okay. Genuine cakes or custards or strange afternoon tea style ingredients. And potato scallops may have also meant something far more literal too. For example, back in 1905, the Bundaberg Mail and Burnett Advertiser gave a recipe for potato scallops. Boil two pounds of potatoes, dry well and pound in a mortar, adding three ounces of butter, half a gill of cream or melted butter sauce and seasoning of pepper, salt and nutmeg. They loved nutmeg back then, didn't they? <laughs> when quite smooth, butter some scallop shells, put in a teaspoon of, teaspoonful of mixture, brush over with egg and bake till brown. Serve with watercress. Wait, so actual scallop shells? Actual scallop shells. They're not edible. <laughs> but just with <laughs> mashed potato fashioned in them. Mm, so it's like a bowl, ocean bowl. I guess, but they're pretty flat as well. Well, okay, let's stop imagining it. Em, mm. do you want to open up your, oh, uh, your no. air fryer? <laughs> this is the mystery thing you put in the air because fryer wrapped I, in foil. <laughs> I have made some of the 1905 Bundaberg Mail and Burnett Advertiser potato scallops. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Making the most of... Um, Living by the beach. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did. I sourced some scallop shells from the local Facebook group. Um, I've added a little bit of carrot in there just so it looks a bit more like a scallop. <laughs> it's a little, little cute. That's little, a nice touch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very 70s. So, yeah, it's, it's mashed potato with nutmeg through it with egg wash uh, fashioned, <laughs> basically just plonked on a scallop shell okay. and baked in the oven. It's got real 70s dinner party yeah. vibes. Uh, like when they just put thing, like arrange things more like for looks rather yeah. than for taste. Yeah. The, the scallop shell is offering no taste at all. These are <laughs> basically ornamental. Um, em, do you want to give it a try? Yes, please. Thank you. Okay. How do I – do I – Lick it off the shell. Like, did you bring any utensils? I, <laughs> I didn't bring any utensils. Maybe okay. just, like it's pretty solid. You could just maybe just yeah, oh, okay. just move it off the like an oyster. Sh- yeah, like an oyster, <laughs> or just pick it up in your fingers. That's fine. Mm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely tasted like. A hash brown without much salt and also now I'm just holding a scallop shell. <laughs> but the carrot was a nice touch. Yeah, well thank done you. Then. <laughs> but maybe if you're – it's 1905, you're at a cocktail party, things are like yeah, a little bit classy. Yeah, into a little fan. Now you're fanning yourself yeah. with – maybe that's what they did. I mean, it's Bundaberg. It's it's warm up there. Yeah, where it is like a hair decoration or yeah. something. Yeah. So, yeah, um, she goes on to say that um, similar, similar recipes, some suggesting patty tins or even pastry cases – as alternative containers crop up over the following two decades. And then there's the dish of sliced potatoes dressed with a creamy sauce and laid in a pie dish, which is known as scallop potatoes or sometimes potato scallop. So very different things, a cakey potato arrangement, potato on a scallop shell Mm. have, I guess, over the years overlapped, uh, become the same product, but with different, different names. And now they're all really similar when you get them they're at exactly the pigeon chip shop. So all the same. Very confusing. I I think there should there should be more scallop shells. Agree. 
All right, Ben, what's the cheapest you remember minimum chips being in your lifetime? Oh, I feel like a dollar like penny. Fifty. <laughs> <laughs> Thruppence. Thruppence back in the late 1950s. Uh, yeah, I feel like maybe a dollar fifty I remember seeing yeah, okay. or a dollar twenty, something like that. Yeah. I remember two dollars in the nineties mm. or early two thousands. Yeah. Um, and with that amount, you were still like having some for breakfast the next day. Mm. Like yeah, there was just an excess of chips. Question on that one. Mm. Do you ever do anything with your leftover chips? No, uh, just oh, heat them up. Mm-hmm. Remember that time I made a um, chip pizza though, where uh, the base was yeah. chips. Yeah, chip pizza is a good one because uh, sometimes I, uh, I do it I, like I kind of hash brown them. You know, oh, like okay. give them a little blend. Yeah, and throw in a little egg. That's that good. them together because they're kind of not great the next day, are they? They're, they're never great dry. the next day, but this way you're at least. I guess introducing some more grease back to them. Yes, that's and, always good. And opening up a little bit more surface area, so mm. in- increasing the crisp. Sorry, I digress. Go Hack on. for free. <laughs> um, so let's define minimum chips, okay? It should be enough to feed two to four people. should come wrapped in paper. And you can only get minimum chips from a fish and chip shop. Like yep. Nando's aren't doing minimum chips. No, and I think wrapped in paper is really important because it's not in a cup. No. It's not in a in a cardboard container. Like no. it, it's a, it's an indefinable thing. It's mm. like it's like a handful or a scoopful. Yes, I agree. So price-wise these days minimum chips cost about $6.50. Really? Well, yeah, that's kind of like the average. So at at my local it's like $4.50, but and then at some places I've seen like the Half Moon Bay kiosk mm. was $8. Yeah. Um and I think definition-wise, I would say it's like the minimum amount of chips you can buy slash perhaps the minimum amount it's worth putting in the deep fryer. For them to fire yeah, up the deep fryer. Exactly. For, got it. So that makes sense. Logical. So if minimum chips is the minimum amount of chips you can buy, yeah. what's half minimum? Some people are ordering half minimum. I didn't know this until I did a radio segment Whoa. on fish and chips the other day. Whoa. And people were tell, telling me their orders and they're like, yeah, half, half minimum chips. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? What? The basic mathematics does not <laughs> stack does, up. That does not make sense. <laughs> because you can't get smaller than minimum. Like the definition no. of minimum is the least or smallest amount or quantity possible. And you can't halve minimum because half minimum is the new minimum, yeah. which means old minimum is double minimum. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So I needed to find out if half minimum is a real thing mm. or just like lying callers. So I called around some fish and chip shops, in, induced many anxiety attacks at myself. <laughs> I hate this so much. I w- like there's nothing worse than ringing up a fish and chip shop and just – being a fucking pest. <laughs> anyway, when I rang my local, so their minimum chips is four fifty. I asked for half minimum, and he said half minimum in shock, and said only if you order something else. Yeah, okay. And then I clarified how much half minimum would be, and he said, yeah, two seventy five, half the price. Okay. Rang up a fancy fish and chip shop in Fairfield. They're doing six dollar minimum chips. Asked whether they do half minimum and she gave me the longest pause mm. and said, yes, we do. And I clarified and it's $3. Yeah. Then I rang up Brunswick. This is the home of the 
uh, Brunswick Potato Cake mentioned before. So they said they're doing $6 minimums and I asked if they do half minimum and she said only if you order something else. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean that would be I'm not putting yeah. half a scoop of chips in the deep fryer. It's not worth my, my time yeah. here person. But if you have a scallop in there or a corn jack yes. or a chico roll, yeah, away we go. We, we have to make it worth their time. Yep. So, yeah, half minimum is technically a thing, but they're not happy about no, it. No, no. You wouldn't be. No. Nah. <laughs> so, please, don't be a tight ass. Order heaps <laughs> of stuff from the fish and chip shop that isn't chips and half minimum if you must. Yeah. Okay, if you must. Yeah. Uh, and if you've got any leftover, make yourself a chip pizza. What's wrong with leftovers? Yeah. Guys, come on. Okay, um, we're talking about fish and chips. Yeah. Fish and chips is a catch-all term, yeah, isn't it? I there's mean, we've fish, just, there's chips. There's fish, there's chips, <laughs> there's dim sims, there's no, chico the rolls, there's corn jacks, there's battered salves, there's deep fried Mars bars, oh there's, there's saveloys, mm. there's, you know. So it's a very, like it's a... It's lots a, of crunchy things. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a term that encapsulates lots of crunchy things and there's one thing that is common to all of these crunchy things and that is oil. Mm, very important. And I know we've done the oil episode, but I wanted to revisit fish and chip oil because it's a very specific oil. We talked a lot about highfalutin, you know, olive oil. But they're yeah, not using true. no olive oil at the fish and chip shop. Ma- and mainly you wouldn't want them to. It's not a good frying oil. No. They t- tend to be using a vegetable oil, cottonseed, for example. Mm. Um, and fish and chip shops use a lot of oil. According, according to an article in The Independent, uh, Skipper's Fish and Chips in Euxton, Lancashire, and we will talk a little bit about the English versus Australian fish and chips as, as we go on. I will at least because, you know, they, they came up around the same time. We'll talk a little bit about the history, but they're such a big thing in English culture, fish and chips. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the content online is, is from the UK, including this story. Uh, that, yeah, that um, the Skipper's Fish and Chip Shop in Euxton, Lancashire, said the shop typically uses around 200 litres or 10 20-litre drums of sunflower oil per week. Oh, okay. That's a lot. I thought you were going to say per day, but that's still a lot. No, and and it's used probably twice, sometimes three times. It's like filtered and then reused. So, so when you say used twice, you would say like used on two days or uh, like because you'd be doing like multiple oh orders. multiple yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, two days so th- so then it'd be called fil- filtered and then yeah. reused and you can't use it much after that it starts to taste burnt um but last year there was a panic that the war in ukraine would actually shut down uk's fish and chip shops because most of the uk's oil comes from ukraine mm. uh, it didn't play out but things look dicey for a while because yeah. there is so much oil required. Um, which also brings me to the real question. What happens to all that oil? I've often wondered this because you can't just put it in the bin or like put it down the sink because it's bad for the environment. You can't right? You can't do that. So it needs to be Creates called. Creates fatbergs. Th- that's right. So it can't, it, you legally cannot pour it down the sink yeah. and you can't bury it. So it needs to be taken away and repurposed. So uh, it's collected and much of it is turned into biofuel among other things. So it still has value. It, ha- it has so much value that in the UK in 2022, there were a spate of thefts of used oil. Mm. So a lot of fish and chip shops just kind of keep it in barrels or crates or containers and keep it in the, like the back laneway until the, the oil people can come and, and, yeah. and recycle it. Uh, and so there was these thefts. This is from the local face- Facebook post. The uh, local police force in the Berkshires explained... 
We've been made aware of a crime trend involving the theft of used cooking oil recently. Although this would seem a strange thing to steal, used cooking oil has value for things like biofuels and other purposes. We would ask all food outlets in the area to be alert for this type of crime. So-called chip shop fuel can be harmful to modern diesel engines and can clog up important parts, such as fuel injectors and emission control devices. So people are stealing it, making like black market biofuel and selling it to truckers, basically. Must it be worth less than what it is to buy it? Yes. Because otherwise you could just buy the oil. Yeah, but it has value. I guess that's good though because then it's less likely that people are going to just throw it out. Yes. Well, they, they won't do that. And I'll tell you where they particularly won't do it. It's on the Nullarbor Plain. Okay. Emily, you have an EV. Yes, I do. Have you ever thought about driving across the Nullarbor Plain to Perth from the east coast of Australia where we are? Absolutely not. I freak out driving into the city. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, if you did think about it, uh, there is an opportunity for you with thanks to Fish and Chip Shop Oil. Here's a little clip from the news. Electric vehicle owners will be able to have their hot chips and eat them too, thanks to a EV charger that runs on leftover fryer oil. It's called Biofill. It will plug a 700 kilometre gap between fast charging networks built by the WA and South Australian governments. So there you go. In Seduna in WA, there is an EV charger, which is like hundreds of kilometres from the nearest EV charger that is powered by biofuel from the fish and chip shop at the roadhouse. I love that. I want to like go there, eat fish and chips there and like as like a little yeah. attraction. You're you powering your car. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Um, and I know what you're thinking. This is, this is a story from 2022. Uh, is it still there? Can I charge my fancy EV there, mm. Emily? It is still there. It, well, it's still on Google Maps. There is one review from Tony Parker. He says... Biofuel-driven 50-kilowatt-an-hour charger, a great asset for EVs crossing the Nullarbor. Charge for an hour and a half at 49-kilowatt-hours on 4th of May. Thank you, Saguna Roadhouse. Five stars. So, Emily, uh, the good news is there is a roadhouse where you can buy a Chico Roll and it will power your car. I'm there. Then we've spoken about Agro's cartoon connection before on the show. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's why, a food podcast why, after all. Why have we? I know we have, but why, why did know. we again? I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, you said it was Agro Brand. Oh, INJ Agro Brand. Yeah. Um, cordon, Chicken nuggets cordon blur. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you used to be able to get INJ Agro Brand Cordon Bleu. I know that for a fact. Okay. Well, I think that you know that one of my alter egos is Ranger Stacy. Yeah. Because I seem to come across marine life in need of help. Mm. And animal life as well. Well, what are the, what's the animal life? I don't know. There's been... There's been two turtles okay. that have moved off yeah. bike paths. Turtles. In the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. <laughs> and this summer I found a sick penguin mm, on the penguin, Mornington Peninsula. Right. Yeah. And I brought it under our umbrella until someone arrived to take it to the vet. So basically what I'm saying is I care about sea creatures. So when I put in my fish and chip order, I'm that annoying person who asks for a random fish that isn't a flake. And then it arrives and no one can tell which one it is. Yeah, and yeah. It doesn't really matter. It's the principle. It's the education that mm. I'm giving everybody else. And you do that because flake? I do it because it's hard to know what flake actually means. Gotcha. Because there's no legal obligation to label flake by species or where it's from. Like usually it means shark meat. Mm -hmm. um, and the rules say that only two types of shark, gummy shark and New Zealand rig, should be sold as flake in Australia. And other sharks should be labelled according to its species. But... 
these rules aren't actually enforceable. So basically you could be eating an endangered species of shark like school shark or hammerhead or even like a critically endangered shark caught in South America, the narrow-nosed smoothhound. Because a few years ago there was like this DNA analysis of flake samples from 96 fish and chip shops across Adelaide and South Australia and three of them were that critically endangered one from um, South America. And only 29 were actually gummy shark. So basically, unless it's labelled, if you order flake, you don't always know what you're getting. So what are the alternatives? I usually go for whiting, but flathead is also good according to the Good Fish, Bad Fish website. And there's like not much of a price difference. In some shops, I've noticed that like the non-flake options are actually cheaper than flake, which I think is good to encourage more people to kind of avoid it. So that's the end of my rant. And I guess <laughs> I'd like to finish by saying if I'm Ranger Stacy, I guess you're aggro. <laughs> is that right? I guess I guess. <laughs> Make some I, um, kind of sexist yeah, joke. And <laughs> oh, get a doll. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Sweetheart. Speaking of history, fish and chips. Yeah. They have a long history. Yes. In Dating the, back to the Civil War. Let's leave the <laughs> Civil War out of this, but we will get to war. Uh, in the UK, fish and chips are thought to have uh, been first sold in London's East End. Uh, according to some, the first fish and chip shop was opened in London by Joseph Malin, who sold fish fried in the Jewish fashion, is how it was described. So the practice of frying fish uh, is thought to have been brought to the UK by Western Sephardic Jews settling in England in the 17th century from Spain and Portugal. So that's where the fish came from. Yep. The chips came from either Belgium or France. There's a big fight about that. But at around 1860, this guy, Joseph Malin, started selling them in the East End together. So fish yes. and chips together, wrapped in paper. That's where that came from. So not long after that in Australia, 19 years after that, uh, uh, Greek migrant uh, Athanasios Camino is credited with introducing the takeaway meal here. He opened the first Australian fish and chip shop in 1879 on Sydney's Oxford Street. Um, although family records say that maybe he copied the idea from a Welshman's shop nearby. But it yeah. was around that time, around the same time, fish and chips kind of happened in Australia and the UK. Um, so a long history, very storied, but I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how did World War II affect fish and chips, Emily? Oh, yes, that is exactly what I'm thinking. So much rationing all over the world, but particularly in the UK with, you know. uh, Tell me. I'm on the edge of my seat. Tell me. (laughs) You'll be happy to know that it didn't affect fish and chips because, according to Wikipedia, the British government safeguarded the supply of fish and chips during the First World War and again in the Second World War. It was one of the few foods in the UK not subject to rationing during the wars which further contributed to its popularity. It was basically like, we can't take your fish and chips away. Yeah. That we'll lose the war. The, the, you know, the morale will be so low if we can't give you your fish and chips. That's how big fish and chips are right. in the UK. Um, and I know what, also know what you're thinking. How, how about some more recent military history? No, of fish I was and thinking, chips? what would our equivalent be? Like um, Dim Sims. Dim, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> as Joe is like, Tim we Tams. can't take away. <laughs> yeah. Be- Vegemite? I guess it would be. Yeah. That would suck. Probably. Yeah. Um, but let's go to some more recent military fish and chip facts. Uh, and let's lighten things up with the violent sectarian conflict in the early 1970s in Northern Ireland, uh, where armoured fish and chip trucks were developed mm. to make sure that British troops stationed there during the Troubles could get hold of their God given right, fish and chips. 
Right. So this isn't about people stealing the fish and chips like they no, would when they no, like, it was it was so the they could basically get fish and chips to the frontline yeah, troops okay. uh in a in a very troubled part of the world at that time and um you know for for much longer after that. So uh, this is from a website called frontlineulster.co.uk on April 8, 1971, a high priority order was received for three vehicles to be fitted out for use as fish and chip vans in Northern Ireland. After, after some deliberation, it was decided to use Bedford J-type horse and body large van, three of which were available for conversion. These vehicles would affectionately be known as the Codpiece, which is a good name. <laughs> it is a good name. Uh, the purpose of the va- these vans was to issue food to the soldiers on the streets of Belfast. Because of this near frontline deployment, they required armour to be fitted to pre- protect their Army Catering Corps crew. The armour was in the form of applique B vehicle protection, which included underfloor protection. Um, there's a, you know all these military documents basically, and it it had to it was essential to stop low velocity weapons at point blank range. Desirable to stop seven point six two millimeter armour piercing ammunition at fifty meters, and run flat tires for logistic vehicles to travel twenty miles at thirty miles per hour. I don't know what that means. I guess so they could drive it over broken glass or something mm. like so that's some dangerous fish and chips right there yeah that's sure. that's how beloved they, they taste extra good <laughs> well they would yeah if you were if you were queuing up somewhere near 7.62 millimeter armor piercing ammunition mm. those those fish and chips would they would they would taste good hope the potato cakes don't have the potato custard <laughs> hope they're like proper potato cakes i think they probably would have been Hey, that was our fish and chips episode. What did we talk about? Well, I talked about the weirdest fish and chip orders and made a deep fried kiwi fruit. I explored half minimum chips and how it mathematically doesn't make sense. And then I looked into flake alternatives as my alter ego, Ranger Stacy. And I made potato scallops in a scallop shell. Talked about biofuel theft and charging your EV with Chico rolls. And then dipped into the military history of fish and chips. And you can vote for whose fish and chips facts you found the most interesting on our Instagram. It's in Greedopedia. We'll put a little poll up later on. And if you're wondering why the hell we did not touch on dim sims in the fish and chip episode, that is because we're dedicating a whole episode to them next week. This is our deep fried deep dive week one. There are three more episodes to come from the deep fryer. Um, ben, I can smell smoke. Did you finally kill every appliance in this studio? No, Em, that's just the waft of perfectly smoking embers from Vivid Fire Kitchen, which is exactly what it sounds like. A pop-up kitchen running as part of Vivid from May 24 to June 15 at the Goods Line in the Sydney CBD, and it's all about cooking with fire. Tandoor, teppanyaki, First Nations food, tender brisket, charred veggies, and aromatic satay, to name a few. That sounds a lot better than your jackals, Ben. No offence. Offence taken. Vivid Fire Kitchen, proudly sponsoring this episode of Ingredipedia.